This is It's Never Just a Game. I'm Greg Pesci. And I'm NJ Pesci. And welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to Utah, Greg. Yeah, it's good to be here. At least coast swing for the family. Back in the old uh, stomping grounds. Or uh, to say it, uh, and I'm I'm told that my accent is not as good as I think it is. Um, Oh my gosh. So I was told, uh, you know, but the old stomping grounds there. Uh, so we got back from the coast of the east where um, some of us spent some time in Massachusetts and uh, and then we went to New York. Yeah, it was great. It was great to be together and get extended family with us. Uh, I will say this before we get into the subject matter of why we were there. Um, I felt like New York City um, was in many ways, at least in what we saw, was more affected by COVID actually had imagined having not been there for a year yes so before we get to that i would lo- love to chat about that let's just tell them who we have on here today greg with a great guest again a wonderful guest today yeah we were excited about the fact that we have uh jonathan johnson who is the ceo of overstock uh, a, f- a friend of ours a friend of the program a friend of ours but actually uh on top of that a really Excellent executive. I mean, when you take a look at the results of what he's done, yeah, what that team has done while under his leadership, it's absolutely stunning. It really is. He's pretty humble about it, but it's pretty amazing. It's good stuff. So again, wonderful interview, great lessons in there. So we look forward to that. But uh, before we get there, so we, we go to New York, Greg, and, and, and you, uh, you started this. You had this conversation with me a while back saying, let's go do this. And yeah, uh, I just happened we to were- have business in Boston, so I was there already. So the the idea was to see if we could get some family members to go back there because this past Wednesday, the 19th of May, was the 100th anniversary of our grandmother's arrival here in the United States and specifically at Ellis Island. So the thought was maybe some of us could go back there and celebrate that, spend some time at Ellis Island, and also just spend some time together celebrating her life and and our family. It was great. It was great. And uh, the time at Ellis Island, we had a private tour. Uh, you worked it out so we could get some people who don't even work on Wednesday to come in and see us. They were very nice. Very nice. And, and what, <clears throat> what shocked me, Greg, first of all, it shocks me that the place looks as bad as it does. Yep. I mean, the Central Hall is the Central Hall. looks great. But when you get to the hospitals and the wards, it, it's terrible. It's, it's falling it's down. It's, a, it's an embarrassment it is. to us as a nation. It is. It is an embarrassment. We should be able to raise enough money to fix Ellis Island if immigrants are so important to us in this country. Yep. Because that's where this country actually was built, on the backs but of the immigrants. Like, but like most other people, I think, I, I never even knew, Angie. I never even thought about those buildings. I never saw them. Yeah. I don't know how I missed them. I just never thought about it, that there's an entire complex on that property that was dedicated to um helping sick people generally and and with a few other things they were doing and didn't even know it was there. And it's huge. Yeah, it's massive. Now, the other thing that shocked me, I never thought about it, Greg, in all these years. I never thought about what that guy, maybe it was Fred who was the guide, when Mm -hmm. he said, very unusual to have a 16-year-old female unaccompanied arrive in the USA like your grandmother. And very fortunate she wasn't taken by evil forces and sold into slave into servitude, right? Actually, human trafficking, human trafficking sex slavery is the is the term yep. that used to be used. Yeah, I mean, very lucky. I, yeah. I, she she must have stayed on the boat longer, Greg, than I thought because she could have been grabbed up and gone. Yeah, I think um, that was really one of the most interesting things to me that we didn't know. Yeah, I didn't. And that is that it was so dangerous for a young woman like that, and so unusual, and that they were very careful. Uh, um, they were trying to be very careful, at least to make sure that she would not go unintended into the city because yeah. if she did, right. she, the high likelihood that she'd be human trafficked. Yeah. So it was almost a blessing that those in third class and uh, steerage were taken to Ellis Island. They dropped off the first class and second class uh, passengers in New York City. They, they took the rest of them to um, to Ellis Island. Otherwise, who knows? She might have been grabbed up then. Yeah. I so, didn't know that either. I didn't know that's how they divided. Yeah, them. I didn't either. Only those people went to... Ellis Island, but that was pretty cool. Yeah, fortunately, as she told us, she was in third class. 
Yeah, she was in third class. Third class. And again, you know, phonetically, uh, Italians cannot say TH. They can't, yeah. th- 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 they can't do it. They can't yeah. do it. So grandma would say third class. <laughs> uh, one of Which the many. actually pretty, pretty effective description. One of the many reasons why we love grandma. <laughs> so that was fantastic. It was good to see people. We got to see uh, aunts and uncles and, and cousins and nephews, everyone together, which was nice. We need to do that more often. Um, try to get people to come visit us here since there are so many of us here. So we'll do that. But uh, let's. Uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. And the, the dinner that Janine put together was amazing as well. That was good um, food. That was good food. That was good food. Yeah. They cooked a bunch of things that were, you know, based on grandma's recipes. So it was, and it was a wonderful night to see our extended family. Yeah, it was awesome. So well worth the trip back east. Um, and then New York opened up the night we were there. So we were in the West Village and it was hopping. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, it was finally hopping. Yep. So that's all good. Resilient place. Well, let's get the, to uh, Jonathan Johnson for the interview. Let's do that. never just a game today we're very excited to have a chance to speak with jonathan johnson jonathan johnson is the chief executive officer of overstock i will admit early on that he's also a friend which questions his judgment but nonetheless we'll tell you a little bit more about about jonathan he's currently serving as the ceo overstock uh some some people here in utah will know he was a candidate for the republican nomination in 2016 Born in Los Angeles, a diehard Dodgers fan, which we will talk about during this uh, this conversation. Uh, received his bachelor's degree in Japanese from Brigham Young University. And then he went to law school at the J. Ruben Clark Law School. Graduated in 93. Is that correct, Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah. So we were there together. You were a 3L when I was a 1L. Well, I'm, I was always glad to be a 3L and not a 1L. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's married to his wife, Courtney Johnson, for... Um, and how many children do you got? Do you have, Jonathan? We have five children, five boys. Five boys, and yes. how many grandchildren? Uh, one, and she is a granddaughter, and That's... we broke. She broke the mold. She's <laughs> following his graduation. Um, Jonathan worked as a clerk for the Utah Supreme Court Justice Leonard H. Russin. Um, in '99, he was working, for, uh, I guess, for for a period of time for a tenfold corporation here. Um, and then he became the general counsel of Overstock. You can correct anything I'm saying ro- wrong here, Jonathan, whenever you want. So far, so good. Uh, he serves as chairman of the board at Overstock until 2019. Upon the departure of Patrick Byrne on August 22nd, 2019, Jonathan became the interim CEO of the company. One month later, on September 23rd, uh, 2019, uh, Jonathan was appointed CEO of Overstock. And I'm going to throw this part in here. There'll be no forward-looking statements, looking statements, nothing that we can say bad, but I just want to say this myself. I did a little research. My estimation is that the market cap of Overstock on August 20th, 2019, two days before you became the interim CEO, was $673.32 million. The Overstock, as of, I'm sorry, Overstock's market cap as of this morning, best I know, and again, it could be fluctuating a little bit because it's a wonderful market that we have out there, is is more than $3.3 billion. Yeah. And as I don't know if you had um, Mr. Davis for your torts class, but I did. And Mr. Davis taught us about one thing that I'll just leave it with here for the listeners. It's called race ipsa loquitur. And what it means is the thing speaks for itself and the performance of your stock and your leadership, race ipsa loquitur. I'll continue. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been a good run, that's for sure. I, I know you've put put together a I'm great I'm telling team you, doing the Latin the out there, man. I'm looking for some from prima facie and uh, <laughs> some habeas corpus as we're doing this, Greg. But that's a remarkable number. It is a remarkable number. Jonathan's a huge fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, BYU Cougars. He is uh, a lover of poetry and uh, is, is very well known for his uh, interest in and support of notions of what blockchain might be able to do in, for the future of this country and the world. Um, and we're just really, really excited to have you here with us today, Jonathan. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's always great to talk with you, Greg, and I'm looking forward to going back and forth with you and, and Jay. 
that's great. So, so Jonathan, we did go to law school together uh, for one year. I I'm curious, um, could, could you talk to us a little bit about your path? H how do you go from law school to becoming the CEO of Overstock? Well, you know, Greg, you, you mentioned that at one point in my career, I worked for a small software company called Tenfold. And that was a great company as it expanded in the early 2000s. And, and then once the bubble burst, it contracted. And at, at one point, the board of directors came to me and said, Jonathan, you're doing a lot of the work that the CFO would do. You're talking to investors, you're negotiating with the banks, you're doing so much, we'd like you to become the CFO. And I said, no, uh, so much of my personality was tied up uh, in a diploma on the wall. I felt like, you know, I was a lawyer in my core. So I said, no, the board asked me a second time. I said, no, again. And then the board asked me a third time and said, before you say no, we want you to talk to a fellow named Arnie Sorensen who had been the general counsel at Marriott Corporation and was then the CFO at Marriott Corporation. So I, I called Arnie, he said, look, you're making a mistake. You can always go back to practicing law. You don't get a chance to move into the C-suite very often. So uh, on his advice, uh, I took the job as CFO. Although Arnie later became the first non-family CEO of Marriott. So he was a great, great, great businessman. Um, and I enjoyed it. So when I joined Overstock, I joined as the general counsel and kind of six months into my tenure here, our founder and CEO said, Jonathan, I want you to take off the legal cap and put on a, a business cap. And I didn't have to be asked twice that time. I immediately said yes, uh, took a business role, later became the president of the company. Uh, you know, was the president of our blockchain division for a while, uh, and for the better part of the last two years, have been uh, the CEO. I I love running a company. I love thinking of business solutions. I love helping people advance in their career and making them better. It's it, it you know it feels like it's been a great fit for me. Well, the results uh, speak for themselves, as Greg mentioned, Jonathan, and then I was doing some research as well. All of this is public information. Some article I read said something like the growth since you started has been something crazy, like 75%. It, it, that's a remarkable amount of growth that's happening, of course, in a very difficult period of time for everybody in the world. So well done on that. But one of the things I found most interesting, we, we've talked about this previously, we spend a lot of time with organizations uh, working on strategy. And one of the hardest things to do is to get people to focus. And from what I read, um, and I'd love, we'd love to hear you tell us this story and how you made it actually happen, was that uh, when you took over, you thought it looked like there were 27 strategies, which you said was like having zero, and, uh, and you had to help them focus. So I'd love to hear about how you were able to help the organization understand that need for focus, what you decided to focus on, and how'd you move them towards that. That would be a wonderful thing for us to hear. Well, Andrew, thank you for that question. And, you know, I've been the president of Overstock from 2008 to 2013. Then I took some time off. And as Greg mentioned, I ran for governor. And after I lost that election, came back and was the president of our blockchain subsidiary. So when I became the CEO of Overstock, it had been about six years since I'd sat in a e-commerce retail executive meeting at Overstock. And I was surprised by a couple things. One, how many initiatives we had. We did have 27, you mentioned that right and that correctly. And that was frankly like having none because we were so unfocused. The other thing that surprised me was how in that first meeting, so many people in the room were looking at the end of the table waiting for me to make a decision. So we had you know, two things that weren't going right. We weren't focused and people weren't making decisions on their own. They were looking for the CEO to do it. Uh, so I spent the first part of, you know, or the last part of 2019 uh, working on what initiatives we would work on. And they weren't spectacular initiatives. They were basic retail blocking and tackling, getting pricing right, uh, getting better use of our data, 
um, making sure we were getting advertising dollars from our suppliers and spending it correctly. Just things retailers do. And we picked four initiatives to focus on. Um, and you know those things worked for us. So by the end of the first quarter, they were getting baked in. We were all kind of rowing in the same direction. So when the pandemic hit and people hunkered down at home and were shopping online and trying to improve their home by purchasing home furnishings. And we were, we were ready for the tsunami, which, you know, turned into a tailwind for us. Uh, and you're right, over the past year, you know, we've grown tremendously in part because of our focus, in part because of some changes in the market, and then in part because over time, I've been able to instill in the organization what I call intent-based leadership, trying to explain carefully what our objectives are. And then once I know people are have the capacity or capable, let them make decisions. Um, I sat in that first meeting knowing the answers to many of the questions that were coming up, but I didn't want to give them because I didn't want this to turn into micromanagement, where the CEO was making all the decisions. Right. Uh, my view is you give capable people a clear objective, you tell them the intent, and then that you, you let them figure out how best to achieve it. And you know, over the last 20 months, we've really turned into a company where intent-based leadership is, is baked in, and it's, I think it's helped us grow. So, so Jonathan, you, you become the full CEO in towards the very end of September of 2019. And then, um, and then in late February, breaking into March of, of 2020, the world finds out little by little that we've got a pandemic on our hands and, and everything gets turned upside down. I remember even in our small business, it was March 12th, I think it was where we went home, you know, and we, and we had prepared quickly for a few days to get ready for that. And then we, we went home. I'm, I'm curious for what you're willing to share, of course, uh, um, is that how did you, um, how did it become clear to you just how, how big a deal this pandemic was? And when did you first get a sense that it, it actually might be something that would call, where more and more people would call on your business saying, we need your services and we need your products? So we watched in early January of 20, it started happening in China and then Italy. And we actually did late February, early March, we did a couple practice work from home days because we thought that might be where things were going. So we told our employees, you know, work from home on this Wednesday, whatever day of the week it was. And, um, you know, it worked fairly well. We certainly had some wrinkles that we had to iron out. But like your business, Greg, it was March 12th or 16th or something around there where, you know, we said everyone's working from home. Felt like Rudy Gobert at the Jazz Center was patient zero as the NBA shut down and then business almost shut down overnight. And we saw this could be big because early in that shelter in place, people were buying office chairs, which we sell a lot of. We had elastic thread up for sale on our site that sold out immediately as people decided they were going to make their own face masks before face masks became ubiquitous. You know, it was pretty clear early on that people were going to improve their living space as they figured they would be there for two weeks, which turned into two months, which, you know, turned into over a year for many of us. Yeah. So just to jump around for a second, Greg, I want to go back to um, sure. to uh, Jonathan's early education. So uh, we, our listeners love to hear about inflection points, decisions that you make. They're always interested in these paths that lead to something. And um, it, it always breaks our heart when we tell them there was really no path. We just did these things and it works out that way. So I have a degree in Italian literature, which of course opens the world up to you. And... Uh, <laughs> Your, yours is in Japanese. So I'm very curious as a, as a fellow language student, uh, what made you do that? And what were you hoping to do when you were done with that? Well, 
yeah, I, I served as a missionary for two years in Japan, uh, right after my freshman year of college. So I learned to speak Japanese. I came back. I knew I wanted to go to law school and was trying to figure out the fastest major to get there, okay. you know, one that would give me good grades. And because I'd learned to speak Japanese and the, the credit requirements weren't too hard, I took a path of resistance. <laughs> now, I will say in the late 80s when I was doing this, Japan was the biggest economy in the world. You know, they bought yeah. Rockefeller Center, they bought Pebble Beach. I figured it was a great um, path into business through the law. You know, I wanted to be a lawyer servicing Japanese clients. Um, while I was in law school, the Japanese bubble burst. And frankly, they've been in a malaise. That economy has been in a malaise ever since. Yeah. So it didn't really pan out quite the way I anticipated. Um, but it was a great major to allow me to study a bunch of different things because the credit hours were small. I could take public speaking classes. I could take in, you know, uh, economics class and accounting class. I really got a chance to kind of have a true liberal arts education, which I think there's a lot of value. Yes, absolutely. I would agree hundred percent. So I, I didn't know what I would do at the end of it. I just knew I loved it while I was doing it. So uh, it works out. And, and, and I think, I think the greatest thing we can learn as students is to learn how to learn and to learn to love to learn because we can't predict what job we're going to have in five years or 25 years. When I was, when I was in college, e-commerce wasn't a thing. You know, I couldn't have said, oh, I want to be an executive at an e-commerce company. When I was the president of Overstock, initially blockchain wasn't a thing. Right. And I couldn't have said, hey, I want to be the president of our blockchain division because that didn't exist. So, right. you know, learning how to love to learn and kind of making that a lifelong pursuit, I think has helped me grow in business and, and be a better business leader. That's a great so, point. So shifting for just a second to a, a new topic, Jonathan, um, what year were you and Courtney married? We were married in 1988, right after my uh, sophomore year of school, she took a real flyer on me <laughs> to, to marry a 144-pound pimple-faced kid who was a Japanese major. That's not really what you think you're going to hook your wagon to that star. But she took a flyer, and I hope it's paid out for her. Yeah, I think it definitely That's has. That's great. I was curious if you could tell me who won the World Series in 1988. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Los on, Angeles on, on, on Kurt Gibson's home run in Game One against the Oakland A's. That was a big, a big deal. That's right. And I was, I was just thinking we're talking about the Dodgers. I know you're a big lover, and you and uh, you had a little bit of time to think about that, but you, but you got it back. Well, you know, they won last year and in 2020, and that was as long as Courtney and I had been married, and we, 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 you know, we hope it happens sooner, but. We, I grew up in Los Angeles going to Dodger games. When our family moved to Utah, uh, I made a deal with each of my kids in, when starting in grade school that if they would read their reading list that I gave to them at the beginning of the summer, I would road trip with them to a Dodger game. Nice. After that deal happened, they always finished their reading list. <laughs> it was dad and sons road tripping either to – Chavez Ravine down in Los Angeles, or we've been to Core Stadium in Denver, or you know, uh, O. Co. Coliseum in Oakland. But we've seen we've road trip to a Dodger game every year since. That's amazing. Well, you know, very nice to see that uh, Albert went deep the other night. So Pujols hit, I think, six sixty-eight, his first home run for the Dodgers the other night, which was wonderful. I mean, it was just a guy like that gets to stay where he was. Uh, and then jack a home run for the Dodgers. And a guy like that should finish his career in a nice way. And that looks like it's going to be a nice way. So it was well, good to I see. So they're in third place, but they're only two games out of the lead right now. Yeah, we just want to know the Yankees are only a game and a half out. I think they're in third too, but they're yeah. a game and a half out. So we're, we've still got hope too. Yeah. So I, season. Yeah, it so I, I think we get the White Sox, which is not easy. And I think uh, I think the – 
the hated uh, Giants-Dodgers stuff starts this week, right? Los Doyers will play the Giantes this yeah, weekend. Yes. That's going to be good. It's always good stuff. Well, let's swing back around if we could, Jonathan. So very curious about um, your your leadership styles, talking about tent leadership. Love to hear about when you talk about getting more people involved. You were at the table. Everyone was looking to you, and then you're getting more people. And you said something that's really, I, I think, really important for all of our listeners to hear. Once you understood the capability of the group that's there and understanding what that is, you don't necessarily just turn it over to people until you know what that is. And, and a big portion of what great leaders do, of course, is to build that capability inside the organization. And, and it means taking a chance as well, making sure people have a chance to go do things. Tell us about what it's like when someone sits down with you, if you, if you could, one of your direct reports or someone in the organization, you're going to give them something new that you want them to work on. How does that accountability and responsibility normally get transferred to them? Well, there, it's more art than science, but I will say there's an algorithm that I try and think about. Control is on one side of the equation. The, how much control I will give uh, and let them run with. On the other side of the equation are really three things. Their competency level, the clarity uh, that I can give the objective and that they can understand it, and then third, their willingness to stretch and to learn. And I think you have to assume all three of those, competence, clarity, and willing to stretch are zero unless you know otherwise. Okay. If you know someone's competent, you know, you can, that gives you a good sense. Clarity of message, you can, I think, increase the likelihood that that's known if you get it repeated back to you or you do it in writing. I mean, there's a lot of ways to increase that. And then the stretch, you know, some people are grab the brass ring type of folks and some kind of like to be where they are. And I think you have to honor each personality type and give to them what's good for them. So, you know, for example, Overstock hired a new CEO last uh, March 2020. She's been a fantastic hire and has really helped grow our business. We went out uh, to raise capital in the summer of last year. We made the decision in the end of July. We wound up raising $200 million by the middle of August. Adrian, our CFO, had never captained that kind of project before, but I knew she could. Right. because she was competent right. and because she wanted to stretch. And I knew I could count on her if I put the right team around her with investment bankers and others. And, you know, three weeks after getting that assignment, we had $200 million more in the bank and she'd done a great job. I think because one, she was competent, two, the clarity of the objective, and three, she wanted to stretch and I helped put up around her uh, a team that could help her do that. And you know, that's just, that's a simple example, but I think you can apply yeah. to a lot of different things. Great. Well, um, Jonathan, curious about some advice you, you might give to some of our um, younger listeners or early on in their careers, young, younger men and women who are just starting out. You said something earlier about, about e-commerce when you first started doing things, right? And who knew about blockchain? And you could have lots of other examples. And, and you talked about, you know, and building the ability to, to learn. A lot of people still come to school and think there's a direct path, right? It's a straight line from where I am right now to where I think I'm going to go. At least in, in our, in my experience, it sounds like in yours, it's not, that's not always the case. And I wonder if you have any just thoughts you're willing to share with young people as they as they start to traverse that, that path? Well, no straight path in my life. No straight path at all. Um, you know, starting law school, getting ready to be a Japan hand and work for the Japanese, their economy bursting. I keep in my file cabinet here in my home office a manila folder of rejection letters that I received in law school. And it's about four inches thick. Um, just because the job I wanted, poof, it got away. Um, when I finally got a great job practicing law in Los Angeles, when I switched uh, to go in-house, took a big pay cut. 
you know, I became, then I, you know, a flyer and, you know, did something outside of my field. When I came to Overstock, I again took a big pay cut. Yeah. My, my income graph, you know, is not a straight line up. It's, it's jags up and down quite a bit. I, I think you have to be able to be opportunistic. You have to be able to ex accept failures and learn from them. But the advice I give to people in their career is twofold. One, if you want to succeed where you are, volunteer for projects. Uh, out in, you know, including those outside of your area of expertise. So when I joined Overstock, I was the lawyer. Job was to keep us out of trouble. You know, early on, I'd been here maybe six, eight weeks. Contract comes across my desk where Palm, folks of Palm Pilot, which our younger listeners won't remember, but our you know, older folks will, it preceded the smartphone. Everyone had a personal digital assistant. They were trying to figure out a better way to liquidate their return products. And they've been doing it through eBay and they were going to do a request for a proposal on a bake-off and the contract came across my desk. And I went to our CEO's office and I said, I would like to captain this project. And he said, well, what do you know about testing product or marketing or warehousing or a host of other things? And I said, a little, but not as much as maybe one or another people here, but all of those things, I know enough about them and I can be the adult supervision on this project. And he looked at me and said, okay, give it a shot. Well, we won the RFP, we won the request for proposal, we had a bake off against eBay. We won that, we won this contract and I became the fifth member of the Overstock executive team because I had volunteered for something. And frankly, my boss didn't think I was qualified to do I proved that I was. So my first piece of advice is volunteer for projects. My second piece of advice is good employees make their boss's life easier. Um, when they see problems, they find solutions. They volunteer for things. Um, they don't wait to be told they get things done ahead of time. They're creative. They're thinking. Anyone who makes their, their manager's life easier We'll get more and more assignments and their career will grow and grow. That's great advice. Great advice. Fantastic stuff. So Jonathan, thank you again for taking the time this morning. I have one last question for you. So we know um, with, with many businesses with the pandemic, people are saying a spend at Procter and Gamble. We spent a lot of time working with, we both work there. We do consulting with them and people are saying, well, the pandemic hit. So you had this wonderful moment. Everyone needs toilet paper. So things are great for you. And things are going very well for your company right now. You're going to be coming out of the pandemic, which is great. Would love to hear some of the thoughts you have, not future looking numbers, but some of the thoughts you have about how you will prepare the company to actually address the world again when it when it's normal again. Well, there's, there's two things I think about. One, how do we keep our business growing? And, you know, we are leaning more and more into home. That's now 90 percent of our revenue, we'd like it to be 100% of our revenue. And we lean more into that because I think this world has changed. People will spend more time in their homes. They're expanding their living spaces from the four walls of their homes to the four corners of their property. We've seen huge patio furniture, surge in sales. We think we'll see more of that. You know, we, we will lean into that and we will associate the Overstock brand more with home. So that's piece one. The other thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about is what does the workplace and workforce look like? We knew how to work from work pre-pandemic. We know how to work from home during the pandemic. How do we find the right balance of work from each or hybrid or maybe not work from the office at all? Um, and I think it's Figuring the important thing will be figuring out what is best for each role in the company, what's best for an individual employee, how can they be most productive and contribute. And that may mean allowing them to work from home all the time, some of the time, or none of the time. And that will be sure. very fluid. And I think getting that right will help us grow in the future, will help other businesses grow in the future. Perfect. Great. Well, 
Th thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for taking the time today. It's been our pleasure on It's Never Just a Game to have Jonathan Johnson, the CEO of Overstock. Um, really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, NJ. Fun to talk to you. You as well. Enjoyed the chance to speak with Jonathan. I, um, I've known him for for years now. We actually were in law school together, although I didn't know him then. Yeah. Um, but had an opportunity to uh, get involved, uh, to get to know him a little better when he got involved in some investment in our company, frankly. So um, got to know him as a person, and, and it's pretty impressive. And his story, which I really enjoyed in, in the interview, that he talked about his career path, that it yeah. wasn't a straight line, and how he came from being – uh, well, the general counsel to eventually becoming CEO of the company. Yeah, I loved how he said that his wife took a flyer on a Japanese major, <laughs> which, uh, you know, personal, sounds personal for me too, Greg. Uh, yeah. The Italian major thing. But um, I, I, it was encouraging for me to hear him say a number of things that we have said previously. And one of those, when we had talked about people progressing, was if you if you want to do that, then make your boss look good. Yep. Do what, Do that. Do that stuff in a way that makes him or her look good. Yeah, and and when you do that, um, show the insight that you can look at something, know that it needs to be done, and you just do it. And yeah, it exactly. It better for, right. for him or her, and you, you just do it. Right. And I think, you know, when I think about our company, uh, I think the same thing. It, it makes such a difference if you, you can rely on someone like that. Right. You can trust someone like that. So remember the conversation we had, and similar one that he had here, when he talks about he, he looks for a competency level. And people, if you're confused by this, if you want to understand why the person next to you keeps getting assignments that you don't get, it's because they are able to show a competency in this area, which again means that the individual can rely on them to do the things that they would do themselves if they could, but they can't. So... You want to get all worked up about it? Why it's not? Why not me? Do do something to raise your competency level in this area, and someone will ask you to do more. And if hey, they hey, don't, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, he just said. He also said, along with that, you just have to have a willingness to do more. Right, and what I thought was really interesting, and it resonated with me, was um, he talked about competency, but then he also said. You should be willing to volunteer, right? Even for things that you're not necessarily a specialist in. Yes. And and I and I thought about you know in my own life when I was working with with Propay, I was general counsel at the time. We were creating a, a couple of new products, and we had this offsite, and there were going to be two teams, one for one product and one for the other. And I went to the CEO at the time and the CEO at the time, and said to them, "I'd like to lead that team." which was the tokenization and encryption team. What did I know about that? Yeah, Absolutely nothing. But I knew I could help run a team. And and they, for whatever reason, gave me the chance. And, and I think that made a big difference about my ability to eventually you know, help run the company. Yeah. So, I mean, who, who, who doesn't want to work for a guy like this? I mean, he talks about leadership in a way that want, he wants it to be inclusive. He wants people to be... He wants to look around the table and, and not be the only person who answers the questions. He wants those on the team to, to feel like they can do that and get more involved in this thing. And, and the great balance of accountability with individual responsibility, that's all you can ask for. You, yeah. you, you get that opportunity. Then you, gotta, you have to go do something with it. And, and, and as uh, it says in a book we used to read, read uh, I don't know, 25 years ago, Greg, it said that kind of opportunity for the talented and motivated, that will be enough. Yep. And so don't don't wait for someone or look for someone to tell you it's your time. But when we're working on the Travel Channel's uh, brand equity, nobody asked me to do that. I didn't even know what I was doing. No idea what we're doing. You just have to say, just do it. Just try that stuff. And so that, and the other thing right, that really is very encouraging when you hear a leader like that is the fact that he understands the importance of focus. Yeah. And recognizing that you know people and their personal desires to do certain things, not necessarily there, but we all know about pet projects people want to be done that have nothing to do with what it is we're doing. Being able to get a group to focus down on, on a few from 27, as he mentioned, that's yeah. a big deal. It, he's, um, 
I've had a chance to be on a, a number of panels with Jonathan, most of them that he was running, frankly, in a variety of settings across the country and even been to um, to Mexico with him and, and with his wife, Courtney, really, really nice family. He is a very smart, but a very nice man, an extremely loyal fellow and uh, and a really good guy. And so I am biased because he's he's a good friend, but he's, he's earned that. And, and in addition to that, if you're a shareholder there, um, you, you should include him in your, your gratitude prayers. Yes, absolutely. The way things have been going. I mean, yeah. 75% increase versus 2019. And, 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 and you can tell he's the, he's the kind of person, Greg, that would attribute that to, the, uh, to COVID before himself. Right. Right. But if you're there, you're counting on what he's thinking about as we ask him the question about what's going to happen next. He's yeah. already considering what they'll have to yeah. do when the pandemic changes and, and buying might change and people's approaches might change. And, um, and so he, he'll never rest on that growth they did the first year. You can and, tell. An- another can just great tell. interview, really. Another great interview. And I hope that uh, for, for many of our listeners to you know, be able to take away some of the nuggets that he shared with us. Yeah. Just last point of this, Greg. We, we have a general sense of what we're going to ask them. And we have a general sense of what they've been doing. We don't give anybody questions beforehand. No. We don't tell anybody what we're going to ask them at all. It makes some people nervous, a little nervous. Yeah. They get over that pretty fast. Um, and, and, and it's not because we're trying to trick anybody. It's just a natural conversation with them. It's and organic. It's organic. Thank you so much. It's definitely sustainable. <laughs> but when you look at it, I think we, we could talk to him. We could have talked to him for three hours, Greg. Oh, it would have been fun. Yeah. I mean, we, gone fast. we'll have to call him again to talk to yeah. him because these are conversations that we only have. So, we, we don't want to take all of their time. Right. There's only so much time we can do with that, but but certainly uh, he's another one of the people we need to call back later and say how's it going and focus on some specific points we want to talk about. Yeah. We'll do that for sure. So yeah, good times, good stuff. Looking forward to the next interview. Let's just shift for a second. I'm not sure Christian will insert music right here uh, to shift. Uh, I'm just saying that I don't think he will. But I want to talk about baseball for a second, Greg. Okay. So we were in New York City when Corey Kluber pitched the no-hitter for the Yankees. I yes. got back from the dinner just in time to see the end of it. Yep. Which was awesome. It was. And his robotic response to it. I couldn't believe yeah. how subdued he was. Yes. <laughs> Dude has two Cy Youngs. Yeah. He's never he's never pitched a no-hitter, and he's not going to change. He's going to be like the robot that he is. Yeah. And just keep winning, man. So here's the thing. That was Major League Baseball's sixth no-hitter this year. That's amazing. And the record for an entire year, Greg, is? I don't know. Seven. We have six before June. Wow. Not good. It's, I don't know that it's because of great pitching. The hitting in Major League Baseball is horrible right now. Okay, and I got to ask you, why do you think? You know. We had this conversation last year with Mike in Middle America. It's partially because of the shift. Exactly. Right? So I believe it's the shift. Now, some people will say that there's such a premium now placed on home run hitting that you just swing for the seats. Strikeouts are way up. They are. it's the shift, man. So for those who don't know, first of all, my daughter, Olivia, said when you mentioned things like the shift and whatever, three, four defense, I have no idea what that is. So for people who don't know, in baseball, you have – infielders that play normally two on the right side and two on the left side of the infield. And the shift says you'll move people predominantly for left-handed hitters, Greg, you'll move them. You'll shift them to one side of the infield. Mm -hmm. So you have a overload of people on one side. That's what the shift is. And that will take away hits. It has been much more detrimental to um, pull hitting left-handed people who are slow. Because they'll put guys not only just yeah. shifting them inside the infield, they'll put them in the outfield. So two points to that one, Greg. One is when Jay Bruce was with the Yankees, I've never seen this ever in a Major League Baseball game. They took an infielder and stuck them in the outfield. So not, not short field. You had four deep outfielders, like at a softball game. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also like a softball game when the second baseman goes and plays short right field. Right. So – Hate all of it. It's ruining baseball. And this is what I understand right now, Greg, that in the minor leagues, they are working on a few experiments. 
one of which is a difference in the height of the mound, a difference in the distance of the mound, maybe pushing it back. And the other one is they are going to force four middle infielders to have their cleats on dirt when the pitch is thrown. So you can't play short right field. You have to be on the dirt, infield dirt, at the very least. Now, you could still Even shift. if someone's going to bunt. Well, you, that's, a, that's a good point. I think they're saying, when they say on the dirt, they're, they're assuming in a non-bunting situation. Okay. And certainly on the infield grass, that would be fine. The outfield grass okay. is not okay. Okay. So you gotcha. can't be on the outfield grass. Okay. Then there's another one that says you cannot shift more than two people on one side of the field or the other. So you could have somebody directly up the middle, I guess. On okay. this. Now, this is important. It's really important. I know everybody's dying to hear this stuff. So, in the minors, they're practicing with right now, experimenting to see what it will mean. But because the batting average today is 236 for Major League Baseball, in the pros, in the pros, 236 in Major League Baseball, that's horrific. It's not good. 25 years ago, 35 years ago, you couldn't, you couldn't make a team hitting 236. No. The Yankees have last week had six people in the lineup hitting under 200. Yeah. It's terrible. Yep. The shift has got to go. It's ruining baseball. Not going to have it. And there's an increase also in hit batsmen. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Which has been happening for years. Yeah. It has well, been happening for what's years. What's that now, about? Again, you, what, people crowd in the plate. Uh, I, I don't know what it is, but it just see, think, things seem a little weird right now. It, it, it is. Uh, they want more offense. They're talking about a bunch of things. They think maybe they raised the seams on the baseball, which is helping pitchers too much. They're also concerned about foreign substances more than they have been in the past. Back in the day, you couldn't put your hand to your mouth while you're on the mound. Now you can. All kinds yeah. of crazy things. But the shift has got to go. But right? the, you know, I, th- I think you're making a good case here for the impact of the shift. Uh, I mean, the Yankees, what, just went 35 innings, at least 35 innings without giving up a yeah. run? Or is it yes. a little more than that maybe? That's, yeah. They haven't done that since when? Who knows? That's a long, yeah. long time. Yeah, it's terrible. So one other sports note. We have a note here from uh, that we have here. It says, Dear Injag, <laughs> long-time listener, first-time caller, please talk more about the NBA. All right. Thanks. I'll hold back her name uh, just to protect the innocent. So the Jazz will play against the Grizzlies. Um, the Warriors are out. They got bounced. Yeah, I saw that. And and, um, and did you see that uh, that that King James will not be disciplined for I, going at? No, he will not. Charles oh, Barkley went way off. Oh no! Oh yeah, just just got out a little while ago. Uh, LeBron James will will not be disciplined in any way for him having gone to whatever he went to, whatever he's invested in. He really is doing a nice job as an entrepreneur, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, um, but yeah, it was a close call. I think if anybody else in the league had done it, maybe it would be a different approach. Great. But, but King James will not be disciplined. They dismissed people from teams who yep. were, of course, excess baggage, yep. people that they didn't care about. They dismissed yep. them for breaking yes. protocol. Nope, he won't yeah. be. So, <laughs> as, as our father used to say to us as young men, we're all equal. Just some of us are more equal than others. Yes, absolutely. So on the NBA thing, we're uh, hoping the Jazz can uh, can do well since we're out living out here you. in Utah. Um, I, I, I'd like to see Milwaukee do well. I always, always like to see Giannis do well. Um, i trying to think of who else. The Suns, I'd like to see them win. It's been a long time for the Suns to win anything. Yes. That wouldn't be bad if they uh, knocked off the Lakers. Sorry to Jonathan. if he. I know he's a Dodger fan. I'm assuming he likes the Lakers as well. Probably, he probably, probably does. does. Uh, and then, of course, you have the, 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 uh, the Knicks and the Nets on the east side doing uh, what they haven't done in a long, long time. The Nets might be the hardest team to beat. Yeah. Could be the it team be. to beat this year. Uh, they had their big three finally playing together. So so we'll do that. Uh, thank you for the in-jag caller who wanted to know more about the NBA. We'll make sure that we spend a little more time on that one. NHL hockey's going as well. I love playoff hockey. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to watch that stuff. And, of course, um, it's an interesting thing, Greg. If we were to do what other sports talk radio shows do, and we're not one of those, but if we were, what's the only thing we talk about? The New York Yankees. Well, that, no, but if, yes, you and I would. Absolutely. That's all we would talk about. But if we were just a, another sports show that didn't show its bias about the Yankees, the only thing we'd ever talk about is NFL. Yes. It doesn't matter what show true. you turn on, Greg. It's true. It Every is, second it, of the day. It dominates. It's the NFL. Every second of the day. It the, is. The, the, the schedule comes out. So now you can talk about every game that's coming. 
for the yeah. next three months. Is Zach Wilson going to beat, uh, you know, uh, what's his name, Sam Darnold in the first week? All, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, uh, it's it's crazy. So, on that note, the the interest, most interesting story right now, of course, is whether or not Aaron Rodgers will be traded. Yeah, and how do you do that? How did we get here? He doesn't want to be there now. They'll wait, Greg. You know, I think it's June the eighth is the date. On June the eighth, then his, I think his um, hit. Market hit for him. The cap hit is uh, goes down seventeen million, so it's like thirty eight million. If he gets traded now, they're going to have a hard hard hit on the cap. If he if he if they trade him after June the eighth, then it goes down to twenty one million. I'm just looking for the difference, brother. Someone uh, could send me I, the difference. Did, just send me the difference. Just send it to me. If you guys don't have to do that seventeen million, <laughs> just send it to me. I mean, I'm just looking 10% of it for right the difference now. right now. That's all. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, it's interesting. And the, and the the latest noise. Uh, was um, Denver. Really? Broncos, yeah. Who was who the uh, MVP of the NFL last year? Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, what, what? this is so strange. He doesn't want to be there. I, I guess he's only, they're going to start finding him. He'll miss practice. He'll, there'll be some mandatories that will cost him $93,000, and then after that it's $50,000 a day that he doesn't come to practice. Right, which uh, he probably yeah. doesn't care. And I could, I could hang out for four or five days. <laughs> but then I got to go in because you know I don't have the difference on that seventeen uh, kind of thing. So anyway, uh, it's getting too far off the subject. It was a great week seeing everybody, having our families together, enjoying our time in New York, enjoying our time in Massachusetts. Uh, I know you weren't able to come; you had something else going on. We were in the old house. We spent two and a half hours in our old home. The guy let us in. Fourteen of us showed up, knocked on his door. He let us in. We're there for two and a half hours telling him stories. What a nice man to do that. Yeah, he had no idea about Greg. He was taking notes down for his wife. And they lived there for 24 years. And we said, hey, we got some stuff. And AJ said, look over in my brother's bedroom over here. Uh, there's some floorboards in the closet that might come up. I used to hide certain things down there under the floorboard. <laughs> now we have to get AJ on and we do have to get him on and talk about um, what his relationship was to, uh, to uh, what's his name, Donovan. Yes. Jeffrey Donovan, who you know, yep. starred in Burn Notice. But that's for yep. another time. Sounds good. This is It's Never Just a Game. I'm Greg Pesci. And I'm NJ Pesci. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>